0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to this episode of New Books in Latin American Studies. Today we're speaking with Dr. Carwell Bjork-James about his new book, The Sovereign Street, Making Revolution in Urban Bolivia, out with the University of Arizona Press in 2020. Carwell Bjork-James is Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Law at Vanderbilt University, Um, Dr. Bjork James conducts immersive and historical research on disruptive protest, environmental struggles, state violence, and indigenous collective rights in Bolivia. Since 2015, he has been the lead researcher of Ultimate Consequences, a database of nearly 600 deaths in Bolivian political conflict. A second research project looks at the political, ethical, and legal tensions that surround resource extraction projects pursued by, quote, post-neoliberal governments in South America. Both projects draw on his experience as an environmental and human rights advocate and as a participant in direct action protest movements. Carl Bjork-James, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. It's such a pleasure to join you. I wonder if we could begin by you telling us a little about the origins of this book and this, this study. Uh, what led you to, to research these movements in Bolivia and how did the project develop and take shape?
1: Sure. So I had been fascinated by and often admiring of the process of Bolivian social movements in the first half of the 2000s, which is when I think a lot of um, people in the rest of the world started paying attention to them I ended up living in Cochabamba during my research as an anthropology doctoral student, um, as well as um, a little bit in La Paz. But Cochabamba had been the scene of the 2000 water war, which is actually, I came to learn the 1999 and 2000 water war, um, one of these first struggles to directly reverse uh, water privatization in a global south setting, and just a kind of a a light of hope um, in the time of the uh, anti-globalization or alter globalization movement that I had been a part of in San Francisco. um, And also one that uh, uh, was connected to uh, the company Bechtel in San Francisco. So, um, you know, folks from that struggle were uh, coming to San Francisco. Friends of mine went to um, Cochabamba to try and learn about their struggle and So that drew me in. But then in 2003 and 2005, uh, there had been these uh, more dramatic struggles called the gas wars, in which people challenged privatization of gas, and also advocated for uh, a refounding of their country as a plurinational state. And so looking at how do movements coalesce, how do they bring themselves onto the national agenda? How do they break into a political party system, which had been uh, overwhelmingly non-indigenous and entirely committed to neoliberalism, uh, the, all those topics were fascinating and were the kinds of uh, coalescing mass movements that I wanted to make my object of study once I started in graduate school.
2: It's really fascinating. And and um, you make the connection at, at uh, different points throughout the book. Um, in terms of your your own participation in those anti or alter globalization movements um in uh protest in what seattle san francisco and elsewhere mm-hmm. um otherwise too i think this uh the sovereign street represents an important contribution to multiple literatures and fields of scholarship you know for instance Um, Our understanding of cities and urban space in Bolivia, the Andes region, uh, Latin America more broadly, indigeneity, relations between race and space you um, take up here, and the rise of Evo Morales and the plurinational state, as you mentioned a little bit, uh, in Bolivia, water war and gas wars of the 2000s. And for scholars of social movements and popular politics, like me, uh, it's really fascinating in how it delves so deeply into the anatomies of strategies of these pivotal struggles in urban Bolivia in the 21st century. And I'm sure others reading it will, will feel the same way. And then, uh, quote, a new way of doing politics uh, is what you conclude by outlining. Could you give us an overview uh, of the sovereign street, and what you think's most important to understand, what you'd like uh, for readers to understand, uh, sure, with, yeah, with this book, and and you know anything about just kind of the major contributions you think the book makes to to these fields.
1: So, if I were when I was thinking about how to write this book and what to intervene in in the topic of of social movements what was driving me was this feeling of, oh, I've read these accounts that uh, describe the protagonists, describe the rising social forces, describe who's involved in social change, but they don't really, it felt to me, explain how it was that this movement was able to uh, claim the power that it did, change politics in the way that it did, intervene in the way that it did. And often there'd be a couple of pages of, there were You know, X number of people in the street, 150,000 people in the street, and then this government fell, or there were all of these people here. Then this contract was reversed, this privatization was changed, and I wanted to know why, Uh, what exactly was making that possible, and so that was kind of the core of my uh, sort of research focus, investigation, et cetera. And it's the the question that I try and address in a lot of uh, in a lot of the sovereign street is getting into how is it that acts of protest accumulate into political power. So um, in the first half of the book, I'm looking very much um, at the accumulation of tactics. Um, and it's built around uh, the concept of uh, claiming Politically meaningful and culturally meaningful spaces um, as a way of exerting uh, pressure and as a way of demonstrating uh, popular legitimacy, broad, broad popular support, etc. Uh,
2: and uh, so, it's, it's- now, do you mean spaces uh, in, in the in the strict sense of you know particular streets and particular parts of? La Paz, for instance, or, yeah, or particular, particular plazas, or, or you mean symbolically, culturally, or a little of both?
1: A little of both, but leaning towards the physical. Um, so that what I'm interested in is why is it that um, being in the right place at the right time, as it were, or like um, demonstrating one's power in um, the downtowns of major cities or converging upon... Uh, national capitals and uh, really interrupting the economy in those places can have significant power. Uh, And it's not just symbolic, right? But I wanted to speak to what is the symbolic importance of some physical spaces. Um, And this forced me to really think about what are the ways that in non-movement, non-upheaval moments, uh, those same places play a role in the solidity of a government in its uh in its public pageantry and its demonstration of popular sovereignty Um, because what emerged in uh in bolivia in the early 2000s but i think what emerges in most uh radical and contestatory social movements that claim a mass base is a competition between a governing political project that says oh we represent the public and uh, an up and coming or insurgent political project that is uh, making some of the same claims. And um, I'm, I'm also really interested in the parallel exercise of symbolic and practical power that's represented by the movements in Bolivia and I think by other successful movement movements around the world. So that um, the pressure that these movements exerted was um, quite real and economic and uh economically disruptive right so social movements in bolivia function um by having what they call general or civic strikes but this is not uh a sort of traditional like western definition of a, of a general strike because many people in bolivia are informal workers many of them are peasants um, many of them are people whose workplaces are not the core of the economy but whose Daily participation is significant, but also whose uh, ability to take themselves out of their day to day routine and then flood into streets, highways, uh, uh, bus terminals, other places that are like key nodes in the circulation of goods in the country uh, are able to exercise power in that way. So that's one kind of space. It's dispersed a bit, but it was physically occupied. And then there's a second kind of space. Um, which was much more concentrated in downtowns often involved central plazas in Bolivia. And those are places where the state has symbolically said, this is our, this is our history of democratic legitimacy. We have a central square, which is the place where 200 years ago during uh, the independence struggles and, you know, 50 or 70 years ago during the national nationalist revolution in Bolivia in 1952, um, people came together and established the state that we are. And what does it mean to have 50,000, 100,000 uh, peasants, grassroots pe- grassroots urban residents, indigenous people uh, in those spaces calling for economic change and calling for self-representation? What well, can mean something really dramatic? It can mean um, an ability for another alternative political community to be asserting its power. Now, what happens if those two things are happening together, right? What happens if those mass meetings are deciding on the nature of the blockades, are deciding that La Paz may, uh, you know, be cut off from uh, groceries, uh, gas uh, gas and fuel for days, for weeks at a time in the process of a political campaign. Then you have something, you know, truly powerful and kind of a public meeting that appears to be directing the direct physical survival of the city, if not the country. And that, that combination is what I examine in the first half of the book um, and represents um, what I see as kind of the, the nucleus of the way that a, a new form of politics um, pushed to the center of the Bolivian political stage from 2000 to 2005.
2: Thanks. And in Chapter One of the book, uh, Carwill, you focus on uh, much of what you were just touching on uh, just just now: um, urban space claiming and revolutionary events. But I think you do a really good job in this book. And if you want to talk particularly about those two uh, components and kind of definitions and how they fit into the study in Bolivia, um, that'll be good. But one thing that you do really effectively, and I think this book is so user friendly and would be great for both upper division undergraduate courses, and then graduate seminars is you include many, uh, what are called here boxes, this kind of inset, um, Three to four boxes, it seems, kind of in each chapter or, or here and there throughout the book, really um, taking up a particular concept like race in Bolivia or Bolivia's turbulent recent history. So I just wanted to kind of flag the that neat feature and, and user-friendly aspect of the book and then uh, open the way for you to talk a little bit more about um urban space claiming and revolutionary events. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, let me focus first on the, the nature of revolutionary events. And this was something where I, I was um uh, I, I found Bill Sewell's work on on the French Revolution really inspiring. Um because what I was trying to think through is why is it that you know these particular moments which are dramatic, involve large numbers of people, um, but aren't, don't necessarily have the same kind of force that maybe an earlier generation of, uh, revolutions carried through arms represented, right? It was, um, these sort of unarmed uprisings and mass events nonetheless had these regime changing impacts. And so, um, what I wanted to draw attention to is the way that we in in everyday politics concede this idea that like, oh, there is a room of people who will fight out our political struggles for us. And we just call it the parliament or we call it the Congress. Um, And then um, what happens with these people power revolutions is that if there's large enough numbers of people on the streets, we're willing to say, oh, this represents someone, something about our society that that can't be overlooked. and it maybe helps a lot if that group of people cannot be cleared from the streets, right? If they are, if they're irrepressible; they're on, unable to be uh, pushed aside. Um, so, it, there. I guess there's a few different ways of thinking about that force, but I and I try to work through them based on the, the premise that uh, this there's something unusual going on here that um, it isn't a matter of. Uh, you know, just like war, logistics, ballistics, who has the more force. Um, and yet something changed, right? And yet the, the, the walls fell before the trumpet instead of before um, the cannon. And um, so trying to think about what exactly are such events? Why do people come to treat them and um, take them seriously? Um, and I would argue that we live in a like long revolutionary era that like in some ways ever since the French Revolution, we've understood that like good states are founded based on um, mass popular participation, a mass public mandate, and that generation after generation we've had different forms of intervention um, in which um, mass public upheavals have played a role. Um, and one can look at sort of all of the uh the classic lineage of revolutions, whether it's like the French or the Fr- the French Commune or Um, 1917 in Russia or, um, the 1952 revolution in, in Bolivia or the 1910 in Mexico and the ways that these are foundational cultural events, um, in which ideas about who deserves representation in in the state are enacted through, uh, physical participation are enacted through, um, uh, public involvement and engagement, um, and enacted on the symbolic stage often of national capitals, um, and increasingly right as we get into like the decades that that i've been alive and i think about um 1981 in, in poland or 1989 in eastern europe um or um you know the rain, the 2011 during the, the arab spring um we have these moments when um large interpersonally connected groups of people claiming this re- representational right um pose a question to elites and sometimes the answer um, that comes about is we would rather acquiesce to this uh, than, than fight it directly. We can't imagine the the scale of bloodshed that's involved in shutting down something like this is is beyond our capacity and we're willing to take a turn in, uh, in the future.
2: On page 48 and 49 in the box, was there a revolution in Bolivia in the early 21st century? Um, you were talking just before that in the book about about um, how did Bolivian revolutionaries themselves identify and define revolution, especially as you mentioned with the 1952 revolution in Bolivia and kind of this history of revolution. Much of political discourse uh, t- tends to tended to be framed by that. But you say the three aspects of revolution laid out here, extra-parliamentary intervention of the excluded masses, transformation of the political system, and reordering of economic relations, allow us to get a handle on, those, on these divergent views. So would you say anything more about how uh, Bolivian revolutionaries talked about revolution and if they thought you yeah. know, what they were doing was in fact one and and this this gets
1: into both the theory of revolution and then the process of oral history right where when people are making statements it is always in a particular politicized present right so yes. there's i got to be to witness the enthusiasm right and sometimes the enthusiastic nostalgia of people who remembered particular moments as deeply transformative, deeply personally engaged. And I think that like that sense of alignment between one's own actions and large scale political shifts is the felt experience of revolution for a lot of people. Um, And that lines up, right? With this idea of like the intervening extra parliamentary intervention, right? Like what you do in the streets actually affects the direction of your country. but then also, revolution is an investment in a promised future, right? In a belief that the political system will change, that um, your life opportunities and your your life will change um, as a result of that involvement. And so, the same—sometimes the same people, and sometimes you know, the same people in different times, or different people in a given moment would have different assessments of whether the government that was produced, that was brought to power of Ava Ava Morales represented a revolution. Um, And that goes alongside the question of, were these moments, moments of revolutionary change? Um, And so I I think this is a, a big and significant question for those of us who don't want our society to endlessly reproduce its current power structure of like, what qualifies as a revolution? How do you see a revolution through and um what do we make of those moments when there's disappointment and betrayal and uh incompleteness to a to a revolution and so one of the Mm -hmm. things i'm trying to do with a book with this book throughout is to lead people through that process um both of the like heady days of immediate impact and of the internal divisions that follow um, and of some of the um, uh, the kinds of shifts that i see uh, present in Bolivia. So I found myself as someone who, you know, wants a more liberated world at, at, you know, on the cusp of both like excitement and disappointment all the time, right? Just seeing like, oh, these are these ways that people have learned to fight and have routinized and generated respect for, um, their ability to collectively organize and intervene in politics. And yet also these are the ways that, um, you know, some of the, like some leaders catapulted into the state like, often, you know, now have the same constraints upon them or shared interests um, that are brought about um, by residents in that state, um, and can, you know, turn against many of the more radical demands that were put forward by Bolivia's vibrant movements.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Thank you, Carwell. In Chapter 2, you talk about the water war and how it served as precedent and prototype for key movements in urban Bolivia going forward. And you referenced it a little bit at the beginning of the conversation, 1999-2000, but um, what was the water war about and how does it then, how did the protests then serve as precedent and prototype?
1: Yeah. So this was a six month period in, uh, in Cochabamba in that emerged in response to the privatization of the municipal water system and the city's water resource. Um, and there's a film called even the rain that speaks to that latter part that, um, A contract was signed with a newly minted corporation owned by Western investors, largely, but also some Bolivian elites to uh, own and operate the municipal water system, Samapa, as well as to control the right to water infrastructure anywhere within uh, the municipality of Cochabamba. So. Cochabamba, like many other Latin American cities, has substantial self-settled popular neighborhoods where people have built their own uh, housing and in many cases built their own water systems. And they were dispossessed of those water systems in the process. People in the central city uh, faced major increases in their water bills uh, overnight, effectively. And the argument was all of this... uh, well, two arguments were made about privatization. One was that foreign capital was needed in order to expand and complete the water system and provide uh, new sources of water. And then separately, that all these rises in rates were actually needed to um, invest in new systems of water um, and not foreign capital after all. Um, so there was a lot of um, anger, disappointment um, uh, at this process. And it also was, you know, a, the symbol of a neoliberal policy: openness to foreign investment, um, enclosure of common resources, uh, and uh, secretive behind behind the scenes deals with new corporate entities that would end up profiting from a, a public resource. So, um, people started organizing fairly early on and built a lot of ties between very different kinds of people affected by this. So, not just these urban uh, ratepayers and para-urban uh, water users, but also um, the irrigation users in the broader uh, Cochabamba Valley became all became highly engaged in this. And uh, they created a set of innovative coordination mechanisms, the largest of which was called the Coordinadora, um, of these kind of public platforms for coordinating protests. Uh, and they engaged in a series of mass protests over water privatization, um, with some early waves in November and December, and then the largest ones in January and, uh, January, February, and April. Uh, and they also hosted a 50,000 person self-organized referendum on water privatization. Uh, so it was a, um, it, it was a gradually building mass movement that utilized several different kinds of pressure. So the the rural residents taught urban residents how to engage in road blockades effectively. Um, Mm. People uh, mobilized in the center city. Um, They were in some ways propelled along by the fact that the national government and the the municipal government both tried to prohibit them from gathering in the central square. So that made um, getting into the central square into a battle all its own. Um, And so you can envision on February 4th and 5th how after a day and a half of fighting your way into the central square, you're a little bit less forgiving, less willing to negotiate um, anything other than complete capitulation of the contract. And, um, And they really created the sensation across the political spectrum that these protests represented the people of Cochabamba. And so, even the elite, elite newspapers would use Cochabamba as the verb for the mobilization, as in, you know, Cochabamba bent
2: the back of the national government, right? Um, so, um, so there was a broad coalition created in that case, and there was sort of uh, people participating in the mobilizations and protests across different sectors in the case of
1: yes, for sure, that- and, and and even though people had somewhat different involvements in this right like my my rates went up my um the sense of motivations right yeah the sense of commonality and mutual support that was built up during these moments of protest was was quite intense um and you know the the blockades multiplied you had people blockading tiny roads even in like bourgeois neighborhoods you had uh you know Lots of people who came in from the poorer sections of the city, like fighting it out with the police in the center of the city and then being fed by the apartment owners in that part of the city. Um, And so there's lots of memories of transgressive, uh, inter-class, interracial alliances that were emerging um, on the streets. Uh, And so people had these really profound moments of felt unity. And I've never stopped being struck by this because on the one hand, I have this very clear story, right? Of, um, you know, from the grassroots working class, poor poor people had never been represented by the city actually coming into the center of city um, and making demands story, but also uh, a story of like heady emotional connection across those lines um, that, that went far beyond that. Um, and in, in my experience, what's interesting is I think a lot of successful revolutions combine this, right? Combine the like leadership and assertion of people who are normally experiencing domination with a felt sense of like vast unified agreement uh, behind uh, a new possibility, uh, and that sense is uh, as I try and document in the story, like partially embodied, right? Like what does it mean to just see other people? you don't know in a space together what does it mean to march together to suffer together and to win together um, in the very physical like block by block sense Uh, and it's in part sociological right it's in part that in order to win in a conflict like this it helps an awful lot if you really are bridging some traditional divides you're pulling together more people than than you should and so it's often when your adversary in this case the municipal and national government overreach and do something that's damaging to more people, right? Damaging to everyone um, that uh, you have this possibility for these kinds of creative alliances and transformative movements.
2: And do you think it was key? I guess it always depends is the short answer, but do you think it was key that uh, this was about water, you know, an, an, an essential uh, thing for day-to-day life for a kind of necessity um, for people across the board. I mean, I guess there were some who could uh, handle the fees mm-hmm. more than others could, but... I, I do think the physicality of it is really
1: profound and, you know, speaks to something that was just so, like, so tangible and then also um, you know, to be without it uh, or to be, to not have access to it after it being hard-fought or after you, you know... Putting up the pipes yourself in your neighborhood uh, to get access to it was w- was profound, uh, but I also think that the materiality of of these struggles um, was also um, regardless of the topic. Like I don't know if natural gas was as daily tangible, although people heat their home, you know, like cook their food with natural gas in Bolivia, um, but. It's more like there were other substances that also united people so that in the process of these mobilizations, the sharing of food and the providing of, you know, like clearing the tear gas out of someone's eyes or providing, you know, the physical sucker in the midst of these conflicts um, was, you know, I think all of that physicality really matters.
2: Um. What about the gas war? What what did, can you lead us uh, to that development? Uh, what several years later, mm-hmm. and kind of um, how it relates to the broader story here?
1: Yeah, so we're talking about a scaling up of participation um, and a so if the the water war happens in in two thousand, there's a set of uh, I would say. W- Diverse and sometimes coordinated, but often like disconnected struggles that happen in two thousand one and two. Um, you know, there's there's pension battles. There's uh, a series of rural strikes um, demanding better conditions of trade and support for uh, indigenous campesinos, especially in the highlands. Um, there's a set of coca struggles. So there's a whole th- whole ferment that's going on, but it's not until. Um, uh, September and October of 2003 that a national effort really comes to cohere, um, around, uh, the proposed, uh, privatization of gas and, and sale of it and export of it through Chile, through multinational, uh, uh, ownership. And so... That challenge um, from the grassroots to the to those new gas policies, but also for a set of other demands around um, around having a constituent assembly that would rewrite the nation's constitution in a way that's more inclusive and of indigenous people uh, c- come together um, into a set of mass mobilizations. A lot people in Cochabamba who are part of the water war are showing up for those things. People who are in uh, El Alto, um, become the core of it. Um, that's the twin city of La Paz. It's a, like overwhelmingly Aymara city, um, probably the fastest growing and most indigenous, uh, major city in Latin America, um, during that time period. And, um, uh, and it's also something that is sparked in the rural areas as well. So El Alto lives in, uh, symbiotic dialogue or caught like with the surrounding, like uh, Altiplano of La Paz because uh, Altenos are migrants from uh, the Altiplano and um, that that part of um, rural unionism has been like powerfully engaged in like in, in reclaiming indigenous identity while pursuing a kind of rural syndicalism. So um, you had early on in um, in that struggle in September, right? So people have started marching, started making demands around September 13th. Um, and then on September 20th, um, there is a military convoy that goes through two major uh, Altapano towns um, and um, res- like in the process, um, protesters, but also uh, rural residents in their homes are, are shot and killed, um, about six of them. And then... The response to that is uh, an increase in blockades and mass organization in El Alto. Um, A major rural leader um, will come and start a sort of five person rolling, sorry, 500 person rolling hunger strike um, in Radio San Gabriel in in El Alto. So um, by rolling hunger strike, I mean that people took shifts. Right, hunger stroke for days, and then other people replace them. Um, and meanwhile, like that becomes a nucleus of some urban blockades. So, it's a, a tactic that had um, been tried and tested in September of 2000 is going to come back with very great force. Um, in, in 2003, in, in 2003. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you have just um, tens of thousands of people engaging in blockades. Um, supplies of groceries and supplies of fuel are going to become scarce in La Paz. There will be a military convoy that attempts to break through that process um, and kind of leads off um, what becomes the bloodiest day of, bloodiest weekend rather, of um, Bolivia's entire democratic period killing like 50 people um, in that one weekend of October 11th, 12th, and 13th. Uh, And then a follow on wave. So there's already at this point, people who had been um, engaged in one of the major protest waves up to that point were mostly already in the streets. Uh, And then you have a set of like parliamentarians, human rights activists, and like middle-class Bolivians engage in these hunger strike pickets, um, which I think are at a number, I think 50 um, across the country, demanding that the president resign after this massacre. Um, and so there's just multiple levels of accumulating force, uh, that, that are happening in, uh, in that gas war, uh, during that deadly weekend, uh, the vice president will resign and say, he can't countenance being a part, sorry, he doesn't resign. He, he walks away. (laughs) Uh, He maintains his status as, as vice president and kind of recognizes this government can't ruling through this level of violence is not acceptable to him. Uh, and that story of how a like moderate neoliberal president in Carlos Mesa comes to publicly recognize the force and legitimacy of this very much like dispersed grassroots mobilization um, comes to honor the dead from the gas war who is, own running mate basically ordered the execution of um in the opening of uh because sorry just I don't want to skip over. Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada will resign and flee to the United States. Um he was the vice pres he, he was the, the vice president. president. So yeah and, and Carlos Mesa, who had been vice president, will step up as uh president in October and his first act will be to you know be sworn in and have a moment of silence for the fallen in this Gas War, who are, you know, all but two, or like civilian protesters. Um, and his second act will be going to El Alto and, you know, recognizing the, the central role of El Alto as a defender of the freedom of Bolivia. Um, and so it's a really dramatic set of uh, state ceremonies in which basically the fallen in, in the Gas War are recognized as kind of national heroes. They're, like, they're treated as soldiers. Um, and, um, and that's a language that is interestingly, I think shared inside of, uh, the social movements and then echoed by this possibly quite oppositional vice president, um, uh, who, um, becomes president will be challenged on gas privatization, um, an, a year and a half later and will h- resign in turn, but will not be willing to organize a kind of, uh, massacre that we saw in two thousand three.
2: And th- throughout that process in the those opening years of the first decade of the 2000s, there's it, 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 am I correct in saying there's a kind of a, a correspondent rise in, in in power and recognition of indigenous people? I mean, if uh, things are based in El Alto there and the in the surrounding area, and then I mean, isn't that uh, also part of what's what's such a big deal here is like Mesa going there. And uh, basically surrounded by indigenous people and sort of having to to go along. Exactly. And I think
1: like I
2: found it difficult in trying to narrate this to get to speak to
1: all of the notes at once. And so what I ended up doing in the book was dividing um, this, you know, grassroots labor power and grassroots indigenous self-representation into kind of two segments of the book even though they took place in a very overlapping process. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on where you are, if I had, if my fieldwork had been in the Altiplano, indigenous self-representation is the story of the April and September 2000 uprisings of the 2001 uprising. Those are stories about indigenous peasants coming to govern themselves. And that built on, you know, arguably an entire generation or entire you know, 40 years of struggle from the early 1970s onward to recast um, the Campesino movement, which had been a pretty, I mean, two things about the Campesino movement. Campesino used to be a term that indigenous people took on to say they weren't indigenous. And the Campesino organizations in the beginning of the 1970s were literally headed by the military dictator. Uh, Mm. Right, so... Building independent unionism and building unionism that was founded on indigenous autonomy was the project of people working under the Banzer dictatorship in the 1970s, and then emerged in these new generation of indigenous indigenous defined organizations of peasants um, in the 1980s. So long struggle that's building up over a long period of time and that very much has a lot of uh, language of indigenous self-government, reclaiming of the uh, you know pre-existent indigenous social order, the invocation of Koyasuyu, the like Southeast quadrant of the Inca empire as an alternative name for Bolivia, ideas of sovereignty, especially in the La Paz part of the Altiplano and a separate kind of reconstitution of uh, indigenous traditional governance Um, in an organization called Konamak, which I refer to as the Highland Traditionalists um, in in the book. And so um, those are all like really powerful ideas and they're very much present in uh, every time that, uh, I would say, rural indigenous communities come into the city, but also in the ways that the people that I spent more time with, the like urban indigenous uh, folks, uh, self-identifying and walking without fear in these in these spaces uh in the city and so because that's a longer slower struggle about exclusion political representation and reclaiming space and like the uh self self self-identification and then self-governance through indigenous collective uh institutions that's a story that i I take on sort of separately in chapters five and six uh, to look at what were the forms of the, the Latin American city was built in uh, exclusion feels like an impartial word. And I really try and grapple with that because there's always been indigenous peoples in, uh, in the Latin American cities, but they were expected to stay out of power, right. And to be there as servants. And uh, now we're in a situation in Bolivia and some other places as well where most indigenous people live in the cities and most urban people probably are indigenous except perhaps in santa cruz uh, so we have a a, a new urban landscape uh, that uh, indigenous peoples have really emerged into and use those spaces and use their their culturally marked presence in to make some really daring political claims
2: and how did the the arrival to the presidency? This is a very uh, this is a question that uh, could have a very long answer, and we're close to the end of time. But how did the rise to power of Abel Morales um, as an indigenous president at, at the head of the state, the plurinational state? How did that? Uh, effect that, um, you know, since indigenous people had of, of uh, being more secure, kind of mm-hmm. owning the streets and the cities. I think you can't underestimate the symbolic importance of
1: a new indigenous president, you know, comfortable speaking in indigenous languages, using indigenous dress as part of the ceremonies of state, um, having a pre inauguration in the ancient site of Tiwanaku um and then inviting into government um into the halls of government indigenous peoples in ma- new and massive numbers um uh, both in the Moss legislative delegation especially after 2009 and in the uh constituent assembly in 2006 and 7 um these were moments of you know i think a tremendously charged arrival that was very plural right very many different people from many different movements took roles in uh, as MAS representatives in the constituent assembly, as MAS representatives in uh, the national Congress. Uh, and so that that sense of indigenous becoming and sense of, oh, in order for us to be here, we have to redefine the state is, is I think really powerful. And the contrast is overwhelming because Evo in 1997 was part of this first class of indigenous representatives in the Congress there are 130 deputies in the Bolivian Congress. There were four indigenous people um, in, in 1997.
2: And, then, and so then Morales is inaugurated in what year? 2006. six. Two thousand so <laughs> it is a breathtakingly fast
1: um, expansion of indigenous representation. Um, and uh, so so we have that. This like real arrival in, in a context in which like the demographics should have allowed that for a long time before. But yes. social convention and sense of who is a leader and the party system and the extreme urban biases as well of the the representation system um were huge. Um and so some of that groundwork is laid in the nineties by decentralization and the law of popular participation, which is the the stepping stone, the Morales' party, the, the movement towards socialism, uh, hyphen political instrument for the sovereignty of the people, uh, used to uh, generate some like political clout to become an institutionalized party. Um, but it's a country that went from, if I remember correctly, having, let's say, 33 municipalities to 339. Um, so what used to be true was the rural areas of, of the uh, of the country were governed from like one provincial town that Mm -hmm. oversaw all of them. And in which the white residents monopolized political representation. And so there's a, even though like indigenous peoples had the right to vote from 1952, their right to self-represent is just drastically changed. And their access to the vote was increased dramatically between 2006 and 2010 by this massive voter registration and just identification provision uh, programs that were implemented by
2: uh, by the Morales government. Yeah, at the same time, then it becomes uh, a house divided, as you say in, in uh, the last chapter of the book, chapter seven, yeah. mobilization and counter-mobilization within the plurinational state.
1: Yeah, so we have, um, you know, the the Morales government does all of these representational actions, and then also is managing a state and an economy, and is has granted um, in constitutional text some very far-reaching ideas um, that it realizes quite. Quite rapidly, right? So the constitution's passed in 2009 and all of the enabling legislation for the constitution needs to be written in 2010 and 11. And that was the time of my fieldwork. Um, and so they promised autonomy in the constitution, but what kind of autonomy? An indigenous march will debate that and we'll find you know, the, the system that's offered lacking. Um, in real autonomy in some ways is grounded in having your own financial revenue stream and the, uh, indigenous fund will become, uh, a a political football. And then ultimately the site of the largest corruption scandal, um, in the Morales era, um, the labor mobilizations, which, um, will continue, right. People will, uh, demand higher wages and, um, they're running up against a government that is committed to, um, macroeconomic stability, right. That it sees itself as having to prove itself to wall street and foreign investors. And I think that's a really challenging situation for any government in the world. Um, and, um, so you have all these fractures, um, and the materiality of indigenous autonomy is going to be gravely contested because the national government is committed to an extractivist, uh, economic project, um, which is something that honestly is shared across the political spectrum with the other parties. Um, and so the possibility of new roadways and new, um, uh, new gas and oil infrastructure and selling like conversion of, um, the very large forests of Bolivia into new agribusiness all become priorities of the national government. And so these, fractures are 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 quite significant. Um and those are just the like structurally explainable ones. I don't know if I have a story for a town like Potosi, right, which eighty percent voted for Moss, 90% even at one point, right? Um and then had a set of development demands that, that they wanted new investment, new other things, and went on strike in 2010 and in 2015 and gradually a wedge between urban Potosi and and the Moss government, um, a wedge built of disappointment um, and uh, feeling like it's it was the sort of leftover stepchild of the the national government, and now that is a city that is uh, intensely skeptical uh, of the Moss and its project.
2: Well, to close, Doctor Bjork James, um, could we shift gears a little bit and 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 uh, talk about your current research or research projects on the horizon
1: yeah so the thing i've spent the most effort on um is building a database around political conflict in bolivia and it's centered around um the lethal consequences uh, of that political conflict so um during during the democratic period so bolivia is an interesting place for this kind of research in general, like all of my research, because it's one of the most politically involved places in, in, in the world, um, with one of the highest percentages of people who say they've participated in a protest in their lifetime. Um, and it's also a place where, you know, there are some really dramatic outcomes as I've discussed from, uh, from protest. Um, but there has been a human cost to that. Um, and so I've documented now over 600 deaths since 1982 in this, um, comprehensive database, which is on its way to being, um, both a, uh, commemorative digital archive in which we remember the circumstances of the SS and a data set in which we can look at patterns of under what circumstances were people able to, uh, organize successfully in spite of, uh, deadly state repression. And I think that that question of um, what happens when there is deadly state repression, how do movements sometimes succeed in that case, is one of the most important ones in in a world in which, um, you know, states have the monopoly of violence.
2: Well, Carwell Bjork James, we appreciate your time today. The book, everyone, is The Sovereign Street, Making Revolution in Urban Bolivia, University of Arizona Press, 2020. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Latin American Studies.
1: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes.